and welcome to the Calories and Rice podcast, the second best China-Africa podcast you ever heard. Broadcasting from the heart of global China-Africa research, Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Winslow Robertson, and I will be joined by the dedicated Dr. Nkemjika Kalu. Dr. Kalu, since this is our last episode before Christmas, care to let our listeners know about what you'll be doing for the holiday? I am actually having a very, very boring holiday period. My plans to vacation in Florida, um, where there is still sunlight and sunshine and warm weather, were um, nixed by the need to study and prepare for an interview, which is a good problem to have. So, um, yeah, I'm in D.C., having coffee and watching a lot of Hallmark this holiday season. Don't judge me. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, <laughs> as for myself, my wife and I are driving up to, to Philadelphia, um, actually the 25th, 26th, and then we'll be back to, to spend a lovely time with our family friends. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm super duper excited. And, and I, I, I'm so happy about your interview. We will discuss that after the podcast. Sounds good. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by our two sponsors, African Development Jobs and the African Daily. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Duro, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. The Africa Daily is an online communications platform that provides most up-to-date journalistic and academic information on China-Africa relations. The forum incorporated on the website also facilitates the cultural and informational exchange among the diaspora communities in major Chinese and African cities. So, we wanted to discuss something a little different today. I'd always wanted to get Mr. Marquitas Presswood on the show. Marquitas is currently pursuing his PhD in modern Chinese history and has a broad interest in the experiences of African Americans and the African diaspora as a whole in China. And he wrote a fantastic article back in July for Tea Leaf Nation slash The Atlantic called A Minority in the Middle Kingdom, My Experience Being Black in China, which, well, talked about being black in China. Not only is he a historian on the topic, but he also has extensive experience in international education, including bringing African-American students to study abroad in China, where he lived for eight years. Marquitas, welcome. Since, Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, ever since I read that article, I'm like, I need this dude on the show, although we didn't actually create the podcast until August. But I knew when I did create a podcast, you'd have to be on it. Okay, thanks for thinking about me. <laughs> Since this is your first time on the show, would you like to tell us about your research? How did you get into it? And when do you plan on getting your PhD? Um, well, you know, I've been, my first time in China was back in 1997 when I was a uh, undergraduate at Morehouse. I studied abroad and uh, I was the only black person on my program of 50 students. It was my first time outside the United States. I was in a program where there were no other black people and it was a very eye-opening experience for me um, that really changed my life because I got to see myself, you know, not just as a, a sort of a, a black man, a black American, you know, living abroad, but just, you know, who I was as a person. But what struck me about my experience most is that the fact that there were not any, you know, African-Americans. I met one other African guy in China my entire semester there. Um, and that experience stayed with me because I, I felt that, you know, more students, more people who look like me should have this experience and should be in China, you know, experiencing the growth of, you know, this unprecedented growth in the history of the world was something that we needed to be a part of. So uh, back in 2005, I started an organization called Black Study Abroad, whose purpose was basically to increase the number of minority students, particularly African-American students, studying in China. And so I ran that for about five years up until 2010, and we, we had a lot of success. I mean, I still have... I had one student who went on and got his MBA at a Chinese university, and um, through that he met... Um, 
a venture capitalist guy there and started a company in China where he, he's still running it today. Um, there are a number of students who, uh, former students who are interested in like foreign um, State Department jobs. And um, we got a lot of students, African-American students who hadn't previously been interested in Asia and China, you know, very excited about doing that. Um, I guess the, a little bit over a year ago, I um, just really started taking, you know, a survey of, you know, what it is that I really wanted to do, you know, moving forward. And uh, a part of that, you know, self-reflection was that, you know, I wanted to go and um, get a doctorate in, in modern Chinese history because that was where my passions lie, my interests lie. And so um, that's exactly why I came back to the States to, to pursue that. Dang, that's that's pretty, pretty darn thorough. What? Okay. Darn, because I, I wrote a, an article, I mean, sorry, I wrote a, a question asking about the Republican era, but I'm not sure if I'm allowed to break that. So instead, I will segue directly to the next portion of the pod. Today's episode will have us discuss being black in China versus being African in China. Is there a difference? Listen and find out. I just want to let people know, I did actually have um, a Zambian guy lined up, uh, a, a, a friend of mine who... And un- unfortunately, things things didn't quite work out because um, I'm a firm believer in getting as many voices as, as possible. Sometimes technology or time difference, you know, works against us. But we still have Marquitas, who knows this stuff super duper well. All right, back to the show. Marquitas, you wrote what it was like being black in China for Tea Leaf Nation slash The Atlantic. Is there anything you wanted to add to that piece? And if you want to talk about that piece and what made you write it, and describe it in detail, go ahead. Yeah, um, there is a lot of visceral, re- visceral reaction to that article online. It was kind of surprising, you know, kind of went viral, and, you know, there are uh, hundreds of comments about about the article and um, regarding the nature of racism in China, if racism exists in China, how different is that from racism in America? Um, it, and, and I don't respond to comments usually in, in, in these sections. I just sort of read them and go through them, and I sort of let people dialogue about it, but I don't really insert myself into the discussion. But there are some very... Uh, very harsh reactions about, you know, a lot of people were very emotional about this topic. And it's something that is not oft talked about in in China circles. And we all know, you know, that it's there, the the racism or the experience of, of blacks in China, there's all this anecdotal evidence and we, and you know, some of my, you know, uh, white colleagues who live and work in China, they'll tell me these stories about, you know, what, you know, Chinese people said about black person or some other person of color from, you know, Southeast Asia or something like that. So I just wanted to write an article that, one, talked about my experience and, and sort of the evolution of what was happening in China in regards to race. And I also wanted to explore and talk about some of the past relationships between um, African-American intellectuals and Chinese intellectuals in the early 20th, early 20th century and sort of, sort of figure out, you know, wait, what were they doing back then? You know, why were they um, building this this cultural bridge and this, this you know, connection? Uh, what are the forces that brought, to, brought them together? And, you know, how can we maybe emulate some of that, you know, today in the present? And what can we use as, you know, um, something to help us move forward in regards to building, you know, better relationships between, you know, blacks in the diaspora and, and Chinese people? So that was sort of, you know, the impetus and, and the reason for the for the article. And in the end, sort of, you know, talking about, well, maybe, you know, we both need to do some things to create a better relationship. But there was a lot of reaction to it and a lot of heated reaction um, to the article. And that's good because it, it got people talking about it. It is something that people weren't really normally talking about. So I was happy about that. I, w- I was wondering if... Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Oh. I, I was wondering if you could clarify what do you mean by racism, what do you mean by Chinese racism, and what do you mean by people of color? Yeah, a very, very good question. So people of color, I, I, I would say you know, non-white people. Um, and, 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 and I would include, you know, Chinese people in that category, though um, now, you know, having lived in the country and, and knowing more, obviously, about 
uh, Chinese people and their definition of themselves, they may or may not put themselves in that category <laughs> as being a person of, of, of people of color who are um, somehow aligned with other people of color. I think they sometimes put themselves in their own category of we are Chinese and whatever that, that may mean. Um, what I mean by racism, I mean um, one group's ability to exercise control or power over another group based on, you know, color of skin, based on perceived, you know, ethnicity. And your last question was Chinese racism, right? Yes. yes. Um, and, you know, many people think that uh, there for, for a long time there is this sort of narrative that, you know, oh, you know, racism came from the West and, um, you know, uh, Chinese people, you know, were sort of influenced by Western racism. This is why they feel that way. You know, Frank Dakota wrote a very, very um, interesting book um, that was basically titled The Discourse of Race in Modern China. And in it, he he talks about that, you know, there was a, a history of this bias, if you want to call it uh, a cultural bias, a racist bias towards, you know, Westerners and foreigners uh, going way, way, way early in, in, in Chinese history. And he uses a lot of uh, official historical texts to sort of tease out and find these instances where Chinese people are, you know, using these different tropes and metaphors about, you know, um, you know, Europeans, for example, as being monkeys and hairies and beasts and animals. You don't really hear much about that anymore, but there's still these tropes uh, about, you know, other people of color as, as, as being animals and things like that. So I, I remember I was walking, um, taking a group of students to uh, the Temple of Heaven in Beijing. And so I'm just, just you know, one black guy. All my students are white. And we're walking, and this one Chinese kid with his parents points at me and says, look, mom, he says this in Chinese, obviously, look, mom, uh, uh, a monkey. And he points directly at me. Oh, and his, um, his parents just break out laughing. I mean, the whole, they're just, they're just, it was just sort of like, but of course he is, you know, it was, it was just sort of this funny reaction they had. And then one of my students said, well, did he just say what I think he said? And I said, yeah, he did. And they were, you know, taken aback and kind of offended. And, you know, I didn't say anything to the parents, to the boy, because at that point, I was just like, there's no need. You know, they're very obviously stuck in their perceptions of, of, of what they think and feel about me. So I wasn't going to, like, argue with them about that. That was, you know, so I just kept walking. And it was sort of a good teaching moment for, moment for my students because they were just like, wow, I would have never known that people would say something like that, you know? Um, so so Chinese racism, it, it's a, a mixture of xenophobia, you know, Lu Xun made this comment, I'm just going to paraphrase, about, you know, that historically the Chinese have looked at foreigners um, in two ways. One, they've either looked at them as being superior to them, or they've looked down on them in disgust and, and you know, sort of despise them. So I think that what what's going on now in China is that, you know, I think that and I'm not going to say indict the entire country and the entire race and group of people because obviously that that would be wrong. But I think from a very broad brushstroke, I think it's accurate in saying that yes, there is an obvious bias uh, towards people of color in China. Um, but now, once you get to a more micro local level, the situation becomes a lot more complex. Um, my wife is Chinese and, you know, a, a lot of other African-Americans and Africans that I know who live in China are also dating Chinese women um, and have really had no problem doing that. Um, but I, I think that racism in, in China is sort of like this sort of color-coded national, social and cultural hierarchy kind of sliding scale that, that you have to sort of fit into. And I'll give you an example. So, for example, um, when you're looking for a job and, you know, you're going to teach English, for example, and you walk in there and they say, well, where are you from? And they can see that I'm a black person. But if I say, hey, I'm from America, I have my American passport, that will sort of, you know, move me up the scale a little bit, right? Because they can say, okay, well, he's not from Africa, he's from America, and that maybe that's a, a little bit better in their eyes, but I'm still not 
put on the same level if I were a white American in terms of getting the job. Now, you know, is that racist, you know, or is that business or, or what is that? I mean, you know, yeah, you can you can look at that and say that, you know, there people they, they want to fit people into this very neat box this very, this group, you're associated with your group. So, you know, white people are, you know, they're more likely to be educated, have money, have power, all these other little things that are respected in China. So, I mean, they'll, may not be liked any more than a black person, but at the same time, they're tolerated. But if you're from Africa, it's more likely in their eyes, in their opinion, that, you know, you're someone from a poor backwards country that's, you know, uh, again, whose situation is, is much worse than, than China's is. So, you know, how can I respect you? Um, so there are these, you know, um, very different um, way they see people that, that's based on, you know, the, the, the country you're from. It's based on the, the, the color of your skin. Because even with, with um, light-skinned black people, for example, people who have a very lighter skin tone, their treatment is actually you know, better than, I would say, a person, even an African-American person who has a darker skin tone. So one of my friends who is very light-complected, I remember um, someone called his house one day, and um, they said, hey, we're looking for a white teacher, and uh, we want to know if you can teach. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, I'm not white. And he's like, and they were just like, no, we, we want you to teach. Mm-hmm. But, a court, but for them, he was okay. Because his skin color was lighter, if not the same complexions of many of many Chinese people, so he was. So it's part of this. Yes, he was American. Yes, he considered himself black. But on that color coded national, you know, scale, you know, he was still. It was okay. So it's a very complex mix. Another thing too that you know, my wife, who's Chinese, also she she told me that I should probably think about too is that, you know, when you see you know like certain like uh, African Americans, for example, dating like certain Chinese women, her question to me would be, well, so where's this Chinese girl from? <laughs> like, what what do her parents do? So it's like she's trying to say, well, where are they social? Where's their social economic status? You know, are they countryside? Are they poor Chinese? Are they a part of the elite? Um, part of the nouveau riche? And so that for her also was telling, and you know, uh, sort of speaks to this whole the social part of this sliding scale, right? Like, well, maybe it was okay for her to date, you know, this black guy because you know her social status, or she's from the countryside. So this is still for her. This is still a step up. This is still dating someone, you know, who who's um, above your level. And we can also see this play out in Chinese society where. You, where you have like girls from the countryside who move to the city, they work for a few years, make some money, they go back to their hometown, and they no longer want to marry a man from their hometown because they feel that, hey, socially, I'm a little bit a step above you now, so I need to marry someone who's closer to my social economic status. So I would say, you know, the situation in China, it's like any other place too, it can be extremely complicated, you know, and it's based on, on color, it's based on, you know, your education what country you're from, a social, sort of social cultural hierarchy, sliding scale. It's there. It's very complex. But, you know, when you're in it, you, you can see it very clearly. And, and just so people don't think that we're accusing, you know, the Chinese of, of you know, naked racism, could you speak about Chinese racism versus American racism? And I speak specifically about individual racism and, like, on-the-ground stuff, not institutional stuff, which will take, you know, hours and hours of our podcast right, time. Right, I, You know, I, in America, um, I, I think it's much more virulent in the sense that, you know, in China, you know, people will have these misconceptions, these biases, these, these racist biases, biases and tendencies toward people of color. But I also feel that they're much more to let those things go once they know and they feel that, wow, this person isn't what I thought he was. So I can give you an example about, you know, like my, my, my father-in-law and my, my mother-in-law, you know, who my mother-in-law was very much against our, our marriage. Oh, this is a personal sort of anecdote. But, you know, over time, I think she's starting to see that, maybe what she's been told or the biases that, you know, she's seen on television 
may not be uh, applicable in this situation. And so she's gradually changing a bit. And I find that even with, I used to live in, you know, Chinese housing and live with local Chinese people. And I think that, you know, the more that you come into contact with some of these people, um, the more some of those biases may tend to, 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 go away. Not all of them. I mean, I think they're still very xenophobic and they're still very, you know, set in their ways. But I think on a human level, on a very local microscopic level, the Chinese are, are a little bit more open to change in regards to what they feel about race and other people. Now, we go to the American situation, and I think that, you know, you can, the difference is, is just simply this. You can go to, you know, Harvard Law School. You can become a University of Chicago professor. You can even become a state senator and then go on to the presidency and still be treated with disdain and disrespect based on your color. That's the American situation. Um, it, it's much more insidious and virulent in, in that sense. It's, it's that whole, you know, one drop of black blood, then you're, you're, you're somehow bad. And, and that, in a sense, America is also changing, too, because one thing that happened with the Obama presidency that I thought was very interesting was that I remember one, um, I was talking to one white girl, and we're talking about, you know, I was talking about Obama being black, and, you know, and she interrupts me, and she says, well, you know his mother was white, so he's half white. And um, I thought that was very interesting that, you know, she would say that because for the longest, the way that I understood race in America, and I'm sure many other people did too, was that, you know, for black people, we considered if you were half black, half white, you're black. That's just, and that's how most white people saw it too. You know, one drop of black blood going back to Plessy versus Ferguson, you know, the, the ruling in, in, was it 18, 1897? But, but going, going back to that, but this somehow sort of started to, Change, but I'm not saying that's changed. That's changed for everybody. Obviously, it hasn't. But I still felt it was very interesting that this 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 woman would say, you know, she would sort of own that, you know, and everybody wanted to sort of own the president in that sense. Um, but but that's the in, in my eyes anyway. That's the, the biggest difference uh, of race in America and race in, in, in China. They both can be very insidious and very dangerous. And and uh, but but the major difference is that somehow in America it takes on. Uh, I think an even harsher, uh, as I said before, virulent like tone. Um, I have a follow-up question for you. Um, what do you think are the what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I guess is it more in terms of the different cultures? Is there a, a, a greater openness to discuss um, racial stereotypes, uh, misconceptions? in in your experience of Chinese culture or um, or would you say that the U.S. is more open? I mean, I don't think the U.S. is that open. I think political correct language has really um, damaged um, or, or, or set back the healthy discourse that we need to have on race because it's a reality and it's a, it's a part of life. But that's my personal view. But what would you say with regards to um, the, the societies as one more open to these sorts of conversations than the other? Well, you know, that's a very interesting point because I also agree with you as well, too. I think um, that as Americans, we are not very open and honest about racial conversations. And, you know, we can blame, you know, having to be politically correct as part of the problem. Um, I, I tend to to think that there has to be some of that. I mean, we just can't go around society saying whatever we want to say and offending people. Um, <laughs> but uh, I do think that you're absolutely right in that, you know, we, we somehow, we don't have these very difficult conversations. And um, I think that the most that we can really ask for in this country is that we all be tolerant of one another. I don't think that we'll get true, genuine acceptance from, you know, some swath of the population. That's just the reality of the matter. But I do think that we all have to respect each other, number one, um, as citizens of this country, um, we have to respect each other's humanity. And that we're, we're all living here together and that we have to figure out a way 
how to, to make this work despite the various different racial ethnic backgrounds that we have in this country. And our country's demographics, they're, they're changing. And, you know, and we have to change with that. And the Republican Party has to change with that. If not, they're going to find themselves, you know, left behind. But we, we have to change. Now, in regards to China, if they're more willing or open to talk about these things, um, I think it, it depends. I, I think one... Um, that, that generally speaking, that yes, they're they're very willing to talk about racial issues and, 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 and racial stuff. And I sort of challenge my friends and the people I know on like Chinese racism, and they'll, they'll shoot back, well, no, racism doesn't exist in China. It's that's an American problem. And I sort of have to you know give them some crude examples. And uh, and I think that they do recognize that it's there. The problem in China is that. Um, the Chinese have not had what I would consider their equivalent of a civil rights movement. Um, the country is 94% ethnically Han Chinese. You have a, you know, a, a very small minority population, and most of those people live in their enclaves you know, uh, around uh, you know, their minority groups in very far-flung places you know, in the country. And few of them come out and actually integrate into mainstream society. Um, if you ask most Chinese people, they'll tell you, oh, the, the government's great towards minority people. They, they can have more than one kid. <laughs> uh, they can, they can you know, they, their test scores, you know, they can have lower test scores to get into school, blah, blah, blah. Life's great for a minority person. I mean, you know, we, you know so, so you have this, so they're kind of living in sort of this, warped world and thinking that they're doing such a great job. On the one hand, I mean, it, you can say, okay, fine, that's commendable. They have their form of affirmative action. But, you know, people do get away with saying a lot of very uh, negative, you know, uh, stereotypical stuff about minority people because, you know, no one's going to confront them on it, right? No one's going to say, you're bad for saying that. People are probably just going to look the other way and say, or just say, oh, but of course they are. You know, no one's going to confront someone and say, oh, you know, those, those Tibetans, those Tibetans are, you know, they're, they're, um, they're, they're causing all the trouble, they're alcoholics, or those, those Xinjiang. No one's going to confront them and say, yeah, you're wrong. I mean, there's going to be sort of this tacit disagreement about, you know, how we feel about minority people. And if some people do feel otherwise, I mean, you know, you might not want to express that opinion. So I think the problem in China is that, you know, again, there hasn't been this, this mass successful movement by minority groups to, you know, draw attention to, to their plight and their various situations. And um, I think that's the biggest issue, um, that nobody's really, you know, and the Chinese themselves sometimes aren't really calling each other out on their own you know, racist, you know, opinions about, you know, people and places, things. I, I just wanted to interject real quick and just say that the Cowboys and Rice podcast is completely apolitical and has no preference for political parties in the U.S., in case anybody's listening. Um, but also, covering my bases here, also, I mean, a Chinese civil rights movement is not something that the Chinese government is necessarily going to be too fond of. Um, no, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's a completely, it's a different society where, I mean, our society obviously is a lot more multicultural, uh, multiracial. And um, matter of fact, some of the minority groups in, in China may be able to pass you know, because they look Asian, right? They can probably pass as Han Chinese if nobody says anything. You know, um, I certainly can't tell the difference sometimes. So and you're there, a racist. There's actually a huge difference. No, I'm, I'm joking. No, but my my, my point is, is that, my my point is that what the civil rights movement did for the United States is that it forced us to be PC. It forced us to accept and look at some of those you know, old stereotypes and those prejudices and, and deal with them, you know? Um, and, you know, in China, 
they haven't had to come to grips with that. And, and just even to move it a step further, even beyond just racism, you know, and move it to discrimination or sexism. And someone wrote in one of the um, to the article in one of the the comment section that she went. She was talking about you know that in China, not only is there discrimination based on race, but there's also discrimination based on sex. You know, for for women or or height. Um, you know, if you're not tall enough or pretty enough, there are a lot of different, you know, um, categories that people are being discriminated against in China uh, besides race. So um, you can go on and on and on. What I'm saying is that the civil rights movement, you know, the, the law, besides just race, it talked about religion, creed, and all these other different things that fell under the umbrella of protection and, and sort of legalized this. And I think these things are probably on the books in, in, in China as well, just probably not enforced as much. But what I'm saying is that you know, there is some legislation in the United States because of that civil rights movement that has forced uh, lawmakers to pass laws to protect the rights uh, against its citizens from discrimination based on these various different categories. And what I'm saying, and in, in, in that that hasn't happened in China yet. I, I, and, and not so not just for minority people because the civil rights you know act didn't just benefit minority people it benefited white women as well so what I'm saying is that there there hasn't been this this sort of movement to say that hey we need to address this issue um, for all people living in China and, and not just my I very 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 well said I, I, we're gonna segue into dealing specifically about the African point um, and and yeah, I, I, I wanted to ask, you know, what difference is there, if any, between being black in China and being black African in China? Um, I, I asked, to, to piggyback on, on, on your point, I, I knew a number of Nigerians who had to tell people they were from Chicago in order to get English teaching jobs in China. What, what do these sort of anecdotes mean, if anything? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, there there are differences in perceptions. Again, going back to what I was talking about about the the color coded national the sliding scale that that takes into account all these different variables, and and you know where you're from is is a huge you know variable in the the sort of calculation of, of where you fit on the, the that sliding scale in China, and um, definitely if you say you're from Africa as opposed to America, that's going to have an impact on um, your employment opportunities. Uh, ironically, though, when I was first in China in 97, those things didn't matter as much because there are plenty of African students who were teaching English um, during that time. And I think there was more of a kind of a, a supply and demand kind of thing as more white people started, you know, Europeans and Americans started going to China. Then all of a sudden, okay, Chinese people had their, their pick. And what happened was that they used their sort of perceptions of the races or different groups to say that, oh, okay, so if, if I can hire a white person, that would be better because their English is probably better and they're more educated and they have money. So, so they were using their own, looking at, you know, the racial issue through their own lenses to say, okay, this person will be the better teacher because they're white. I remember losing an English teaching job to someone who was Swedish with a very heavy accent. But because he had blonde hair and blue eyes, you know, he, he got the job. So um, I think that, you know, these are perceptions, I mean, very long-standing perceptions about black people, about Africa as being this very monolithic, you know, primitive place. Um, and I think that, you know, this goes to back to education, where many Chinese people aren't really that knowledgeable uh, about the continent, and they have very negative opinions about you know um, people who are from that country um, being poor, um, infrastructure there, there being no infrastructure, and in Chinese media people, um, Chinese government also has these advertisements or these you know bulletins saying, hey, we're providing aid to these various different Chinese countries and um, in the Chinese sense of the word aid is is they're taking it as money that you're giving that's not being paid back and they're not saying okay you know you guys are receiving oil from these or various other resources from these countries 
that are helping in your development. It's not seen so it's seen as a uh, not as a win-win situation. It's just seeing that you know hard-earned Chinese resources are going in one direction for African people when they should be used, you know, for us. So I think that creates some some resentment. I think they're also the color bias, you know, um, that, you know, for the most, aesthetically speaking, you know, there are a lot of Chinese people, you know, white skin is the skin that's privileged in, in China. I mean, that's just part of their culture, you know, the white, the whiter a girl is, or that, you know, that's, that's the standard of beauty in that country. And so, you know, part of that is, is, is also to blame. So there's a whole, again, um, amalgamation of all these different, you know, categories that are coming to play that are going to color and influence how, you know, some people, not all, but how some people are going to react to, um, African Americans and African people. Again, you know, you, you, uh, you you say you're American, you get a slightly better reaction as opposed to, you know, saying that you're African. I remember sometimes in the cab when I'm in China, I'll play this game with cab drivers because the first thing they ask me is like, well, so where are you from? So if I say I'm from America, they'll say, oh, wow, America, America's good, America's great, rich country, oh, Obama, you know, they'll, they'll say all these different things. But if I say, well, I'm from Africa, and then nine times out of ten, the cab driver would just be quiet. <laughs> you know, he went he, conversation over. So sometimes, if I don't want to talk to a cab driver, I just say I'm from Africa, and you know, psh, the the cab will be quiet for the, the the next you know fifteen twenty minutes. But so there's this 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 re, this perception, you know, different perception, you know, not just based on color, but also based on nationality, and um, that's very prevalent, you know you know, in China, and that colors how people are treated, unfortunately. Well, wow, I, that's, that's, a, um, that, that, that's a really interesting and, and really informative description. I, I want to ask one follow-up question. So you, you noted the, the change in perception since you got there in the late 90s versus the early 2000s. Um, and I, I want to say, myself, I noticed a, a change in perception. I, I first got to China in 2006, 2007, then I came back. Um, 2009 to 2011, and I, I found um, that my second time through, there was a a a, a, hard, a, a harder sense of uh, an undercurrent of anti-foreign sentiment that I that I felt just walking around, especially when I was holding my wife's hand. Mm. Um, that I, I didn't I didn't feel when I was there in, in 2006 2007, and I was wondering if you could talk about. These sorts of these sorts of changes have been in China far longer than I have, and and these sorts of things, and it also speaks to the fact that you know Chinese people aren't fixed, and their perceptions aren't fixed, and and you know people like it, people everywhere that they they have their their opinions change, and I was wondering if you could chart what being black and what being perhaps African meant in ninety seven through uh, two thousand thirteen. Okay. Um... My first time in China, you know, back in, in 97, I just, I felt like, I felt people were very genuine, very open, very curious about um, who I was as a, as a black person and um, very friendly, you know, in terms of striking up conversations. Um, again, my Chinese is very limited at that time, so, I mean, I, I can't attest to having these really, really deep conversations with people. But I would imagine even then that they still have, you know, their various perceptions about me as a black person. And, and oftentimes what you do get is that, you know, people will say, like, but there are black people in, in America? I mean, you still get that. Even even today, you'll still get some people saying, well, so, or, or they'll say, well, so where are your parents from? And I'll say they're from America, too. Well, what about their parents? Where are their parents? I mean, so it's kind of this thing that, you know, you're you're not from America, really. America's a white country, not, you know. I think the Obama situation has skewed that a little bit in that his father is actually from Africa. So, um, you know, how has this evolved and changed over time? Um there was one um, social scientist out of Fudan University. His name escapes me right now. I can't remember his name. But I do remember the article. He said that as China develops and as the economy grows, he said that you're going to see more instances of violence and altercations between Chinese and foreigners. 
And um, I think that has what was very apt. I mean, I, I think you do see sort of this this nationalism, and I don't. And, and you have to be careful here too, because you know, how many people um, is this a small segment of the population? Is this, is this representative of the entire pop of a large swath of the population? I mean, I, I'm not certain, but there, there obviously is. You know, it, there seems to be, but. You know this sort of nationalist bent in, in China. You know it's very anti-foreigner, um, but I can also argue. You can also argue too. There's always been a kind of xenophobia and, and nationalism in, in, in China. Um, you know, dating going to the early 20th century. I mean, against Westerners and foreign powers. It's it's, it's nothing new. Um, uh, so so I, I think that. Um, you know, Chinese people are, are generally very proud of who they are, very proud of their culture, their heritage. And, you know, they're very proud of the fact that, you know, they have the world's second largest economy right now. And I don't think that's lost on them. And so you do see, um, you know, this sort of kind of overbearing chip on your shoulder kind of pride now. And um, I'm okay with that to a certain extent. You know, I mean, I think nationalism can go a little too far. But I'm, uh, right now, I, I feel it. And, you know, I have friends who are still in Beijing. And, you know, we all feel this sort of, you know, national. It's always bubbling at the surface a little bit. Um, but how that affects, you know, black people living in China, interestingly enough, it kind of sometimes works in our favor. In the sense that, you know, we aren't seen as the group of people who have, uh, you know, uh, practiced, you know, neo-imperialism on China. We're, we're not seen as the people who are trying to hold China back and hold China down. And there's almost this kind of tacit sense of approval that, you know, well, yeah, black people understand, you know, white American racism and they've been through it. So they're, they're, they're kind of okay. Um, that's been my sense sense of things. Um, for example, um, my brother was in China during the, the spy plane incident, where the the, the U.S. ship or the, the Chinese jet um, sort of they bumped into each other, whatever the situation is, however you want to believe what happened, and sort of crash landed in Hainan Island, and the sort of um, nationalism that surrounded that. And my brother was there, and um, so people would ask, you know, so are, are you? And he's like, no, I'm from Africa, and they're like, okay, leave him alone, you know. <laughs> but, but so uh, sometimes, you know, being being a, a black American or being an African it, in situations and crises like that kind of, you know, it sort of helps you out a bit. But generally speaking, when it comes to jobs, when it comes to, to trying to find work, it's difficult. I mean, it's, it's really not just for an African, but for anybody well, who has a, a darker skin color? Even if I, I consider myself, I'm part of sort of that brown hue. But even even I have, you know, I and this is why I stopped teaching English in China is because you know I just got tired of going through the song and dance with people trying to seek you know their approval for me to teach them. And I just said, you know what, I'm done. I'm through with this. I'm just I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, so so it's it's there. It's it's very prevalent and uh, and if you're a black person in China you 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 feel that. Um and how that's changed over time. Um I can't say that it has very much. It, it's always been there, you know? I think the the the, the problem with racial relations in regards to Africans and, and black Americans and, and Chinese is, is, is one that the Chinese have to realize in respect that the Africans or African Americans or black people, darker people have value and, and also to respect their humanity and to, uh, you know, approach them that you can learn something from them and they have something that's valuable to you and vice versa. Um, that we really need to uh, stop sort of using these old stereotypical tropes, you know, if you, if, from the Chinese side, it's like, oh, black people are strong, oh, black people, they, they sing very well, or they're good at entertainment. I mean, let's let's get beyond those, those um, stereotypical tropes, and let's start to, you know, look at, at black people in a very different light, that we're not this monolithic group that's the same. We're very diverse, very 
disparate backgrounds, cultural, linguistically, everything, and, and to start to, to view the relationship that way. And for, you know, I would say for, for African Americans is to, to start to try to, to view the Chinese in a very different light as well, and that is not to automatically go to, oh, Chinese are racist, so I don't want to deal with them, you know? Um, that's, you know, we have to move beyond that, develop a tougher skin and just say, hey, let me engage with, you know, these people. Let me learn a little bit more about their history and their culture. And I think that, you know, both sides will find that there's some commonality there. There is some synergy there. Um, but we, we, we both have to get over these preconceived notions and biases that we have of each other. And in order to move forward. Wow, that's really, really fascinating comments. Um, Dr. Kalu, do you, do you want to get in there before I ask my, my final question? Um, no, I think we've really done a good job of um, discussing the, the gamut, I think. So we can go ahead and move on to the last question. All right. So I actually had some, some few questions. We're running out of time. So I want to ask one last thing before you go to your closing thoughts. Marquitas, sure. December, this is the month of the anti-African protests in Nanjing in 88, 89. This is, uh, started more or less on December 24th. Yes. All right. Now, uh, I'm, I'm going to put a link to a little piece I wrote on that on, um, on, on the blog. But for me, that is, that, is, that is the prism through which I look at actually a lot of um, Chinese-African relations. Mm-hmm. And I know, I know I shouldn't, I know it's the 80s, I know it's a long time ago, um, fair enough, but, um, but I was wondering if you, if you could maybe talk a little bit about that incident and talk a little bit about what, after that happened, uh, is there any chance of anything like that happening again in China, and, and what did that mean for being African in China and, and, and to less extent being black in China? Yeah, that's uh, this is a very difficult one. Um, uh, for for those who don't know, obviously um, there was an incident in, in Nanjing at one of the universities where uh, a couple African students were wanted to take uh, one of their Chinese friends. I don't know if there was a girlfriend up to the dormitory for for whatever you know hangout or whatever. And the Chinese guards on duty, they got into a a verbal confrontation with the guards that uh, sort of got out of hand, and um, a few hours later, there were hundreds, you know, thousands of uh, Chinese students outside the dorm protesting, um, you know, the African students' um, presence or what they were doing with this this Chinese woman, you know, uh, protecting Chinese women's, uh, Chinese women's, you know, virginity or whatever, but, 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 but all these racial tropes came up, you know, so there's this big protest and, you know, the Chinese were like, you know, having these rallies, you know, with banners saying, you know, uh, which, you know, like down with niggers and niggers go home and, and using all this very, you know, nasty language. Um, it got so bad that, um, the African students basically, um, with the help of their respective embassies, basically wanted to go home. I mean, there there was lots lots of protests, and a lot of them did get, go home, and it just really uh, colored their you know changed their perception about you know their 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 life in China. The government's official response was that it was the result of um, some students who had uh, problems with their um, um, clash struggle issues. So they didn't chalk it up as something that was, again, being racist, but it was a few students who were improperly informed about class issues or class control issues in in China. Um, So that was kind of swept under the rug. What I think what happened there, because nothing was said, I mean, of course, during this time, you had lots of white students there who had Chinese girlfriends as well, and and nothing was, was said about them sort of, you know, being with Chinese women. But, of course, there was a lot of uh, brouhaha made about, like, you know, uh, African students being with Chinese women. And um, I think uh, part of it was uh, perception, mostly the perception that African students were being treated 
better than Chinese students. So you had African students coming to China on full scholarships, who lived in nice apartments, who had access to some modern amenities that perhaps Chinese students didn't have. You know, African students were probably living maybe two or three in a room versus, you know, eight students or more in a room compared to Chinese students at the time. So there was some resentment about that. And again, I also would would, would highlight, you know, there was there were also some you know, indigenous racial um, uh, component to that as well um, that sort of flared flared up you know what that meant for you know african china relations um i think it's it's always been you know if we, going back to you mentioned earlier uh, before we started the podcast i think about the bandung conference in 1955 and and, the, and china's relationship with africa i mean what you can see is you know who, who holds the power in that relationship and um how are everyday average normal citizens viewing that relationship in regards to power. Um, I think that for the, the Chinese students uh, during that time, it was about it's about power. Of course, it, there was a racial component to that as well, but it, it was also them being very unhappy with the status quo and, and their life in China at that particular moment in time. Um, in the late uh, 1980s. And you see that boiling over a few months later um, in uh, the Tiananmen Square incident because um, some of the same things that they were, you know, arguing for or, or you know, yelling against during these these, these um, African Nanjing rides were some of the same students who were months later out there in Tiananmen Square and other parts of the country protesting. So um, I think there's a, a linkage there, you know, that, that was definitely racial, um, but it was also uh, linked to some other things, too. Um, that, that's just something that I, I, I thought was very fascinating. This happened, you know, you know, really months before, you know, Liu Si was um, very telling. Um, what... I don't really think, honestly, you know, I mean, the, the, the government tries get sometimes, you know, um, to help with African, you know, Chinese relations. But, you know, recently when I was in, 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 in back in, I think it was 2004, 2005, there was the whole African-China summit. And what I thought was very interesting about that was that there was all these advertisements around the city, but they did have Chinese people like or Chinese officials shaking hands with African officials like pictures what they had with the European summit it was they had like all these billboards with animals <laughs> giraffes and elephants you know the African summit you know and I was just like wow why not show people you know um, pictures of African you know diplomats and leaders you know shaking hands with Chinese leaders why are you showing like this whole trope of like animals giraffes elephants on the Sahara you know wait or the Serengeti what was the point of that you know so um, I, I think that for me the 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 one of the issues has been you know pow- now besides race has been power as well and who owns this relationship who has the upper hand and um, and so, so I feel that that was part of it. And in regards to African and, and, and China relations, I still think that it's the same. I mean, there, there's still this trope and this of, of, of these metaphors about, you know, Africans being inferior and, and, and you know, that they're not, you know, that we're that, that Chinese are helping them and we're helping your country and, you know, you guys need to be thankful and, and great. And so there's still a lot of, if not animosity, you know, uh, definitely a feeling that the Africans are, you know, culturally, economically, you know, not on the same level. Well, okay, wow. Well, um, would you like to provide any closing thoughts before we go to recommendations? Well, just the last thing is that, you know, for, like I said before, I think both sides, on the Chinese side and on the the African side and the African-American side, is that both groups have to make a very concerted effort to really get to know the other other side's culture and history and to see value in each other. 
and um, to respect each other's, you know, humanity as people. I think if we start there, we begin there, we can start to, you know, make some, some inroads, you know, in regards to the relationships. Van- fantastic. Dr. Kalu, any closing thoughts uh, on your end? Um, I mean, I think as, um, as Marquitas has mentioned already, um, it's definitely, a re- China's relationship with the world is definitely in, um, in, in, in flux and is, is changing and there's lots of interesting dynamics at play. And, um, I think that it'll be fascinating to see, um, over time where and how this dynamic changes, especially with regards to, um, perceptions of, of black people, because I, I do think that some of the misconceptions are limiting, um, aspects of coordination and collaboration between, um, Chinese and African entities, which we didn't really get into in the conversation today. But, um, but I mean, it's easy to see how, um, to, to draw those conclusions and to see how those connections can be made. But, um, I think it's, I think it's quite fascinating and I'm very excited and, I'm thrilled for the opportunity to have spoken with you, Mr. Presswood, today. Same here, same here. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> All right, well, we're, we're not quite done yet. We're going we're gonna to go on to recommendations, and, and, and from there we'll, we'll talk about how to find you. So let's, let's do recommendations. Marquitas, would you like to start? Um, yeah, I, just, I wanted to recommend, actually, uh, two books. One is titled War Without Mercy by John Dower, and it's about um, sort, of a, sort of the racial language and the, uh, ra- the, these racial tropes that the Americans and the Japanese used against each other during World War II, during the Pacific War, and from the American side to basically justify genocide against um, the Japanese. I thought this book was very interesting because they were using some of the same language uh, about African Americans in the 16th and 17th century, you know, that they were still using, you know, the 20th century towards Japanese people, but very interesting book. And the second book is um, this, The Discourse of Race in Modern China by Frank Decoder, which is basically the book I, I sort of mentioned before that he sort of um, um, talks about the sort of the origins, goes back into all these historical texts in China and talks about the origins of, you know, Chinese racism or biases and how they see race from a historical point of view up to the present. It's a very interesting book. Wow, I, I I've heard about the Dakota book. Um, some people who who I trust haven't been too fond of it, but but I heard it's made it's made quite a splash. Um, well, it was definitely like you know a, a seminal book, and, and of course many people have come behind it and sort of you know added to it or detracted from it. And, and but it's it's a great starting point to to start you know thinking about you know race in China. Excellent, excellent. All, all right, Dr. Kalu. Um, I have two recommendations. Um, the first one is, um, it's actually, it, it's an interesting sort of tie-in. It's Philip Snow's um, A Star Raft, oh, I can't pronounce it, A Star Raft, um, that was published later towards the end of 1980s. Um, the full title is The Star Raft, China's Encounter with Africa. Um, and it's, it's a very interesting um, look at, Chinese relations with Africa, it's, it's almost a more positive um, panda hugger kind of approach. But I, I think it's good for, um, it's good just for context. And also it, it's a good piece to, to read through and to try and understand, um, to work through some of the, the permutations of this relationship. Um, what's, what's quite fascinating is um, the author does actually talk about Chinese racism um, but he um, he he kind of compares it to Western racism and how um, the, with you know with the Western angle there was the need then to um, I think his exact words was that the Portuguese burned with fire to bring religion and um, and and modern civilization to Africa. Um, meanwhile, although the Chinese also saw the Africans as being lower than them, um, there was just the need for for the Africans to um, Acquiesce, I think, was the term he used to the Chinese superiority and way of life. Um, fascinating read. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, um, and I actually um, I, I read it earlier for my dissertation, but went back and read it. Um, read parts of it earlier this week, and then the second, my second recommendation is from the Guardian. Um, it's an editorial 
on Nelson Mandela. Um, this is, I, I promise, this is not going to be my last recommendation on Nelson Mandela. Uh, but um, the author, um, Slav, I can't say his last name, Slav, Slavoj Zizek. Um, He's that famous lefty dude. Yes. Um, and he's, I, to be honest, I don't always agree with what he has to say, but this was, this was a very fascinating piece. And he makes, he makes, a, he makes an interesting point that I do agree with. Um, and he essentially makes the argument that Mandela was a universally celebrated hero because he didn't win. He didn't do anything. He didn't change the, well, he did some things, but he didn't really change the status quo. And so we celebrate him internationally because he left things pretty much the same and didn't, you know, didn't rob the, the ruling elite of power. Um, and the, the truth of the matter is that the, the um, socioeconomic situations and circumstances that face most of the black population um, while Nelson Mandela was in jail remains, you know, the same and in some instances even worse today. And those are some very, very significant um, policy issues that the South African government is having to address um today so um it's very fascinating read i thoroughly enjoyed it it was better than i think it was um i, I maybe i should have made this another recommendation um an economist had oh and now i can't find it um but he had uh, he'd done a piece on nelson mandela and how nelson mandela was this great person and a lot of the contribution was from a self-help book that he had read that also cited Nelson Mandela. It was fascinating, um, but not in the right sense. But yes, I definitely recommend um, this piece by Mr. Zizek. Zizek, Zizek, Zizek. I, I, yeah. I actually, I actually don't know, but I, I, I know the, I know the guy you're talking about. Oh, uh, so basically, my podcast talked about Republicans and Zizek. So this is like the most left-wing communist podcast in existence. I'll do that. In any case, all right. I got um, two recommendations. One is um, called "Hunt Is On for China Experts." It's uh, on Xinhua, and it's by Joseph Quintanzaro and um, uh, Holly Chang. And it's basically talking about Chinese companies want to hire foreigners who know local markets and who also know China. And so, let's say you are a African student and you want to find a job in your home country with a Chinese company, check out this article. There's actually like a ministry that, that tries to help Chinese companies um, learn about local markets. And, and this kind of shows that, look, you know, Chinese companies are trying to figure out how, how, how to work abroad more effectively. And, and part of it is hiring locals. Um, and so, and yeah, I, I, you know, for Christmas season, find yourself a job, check out this article. Um, the other thing is is uh, a slightly older piece by our, our good friend um, Merlin uh, Linehan um, on on the Cooler Ring blog, and I think it's from August. It's four great reads on emerging markets. So basically, it's four books about emerging markets. If you want a stocking stuffer for for Christmas, or if you want a, a, a holiday present. Some of these books I, I, I've heard are really good. I actually haven't read any of them, but I've heard great things about all of them, and, and I actually plan on reading one or two over, um, yeah, over, the, over this Christmas. Um, that's, that's sort of, yeah, that, that's sort of it. Those are our, our, our recommendations. Uh, before we sign off, Marquitas, how do people find you on the interwebs? Uh, do you have a website, Twitter account that you'd like to share with us? Well, I'm on Twitter. I'm um, at M-A-R-K-E-T-U-S-P. Uh, that's my Twitter account. And what, what do you tweet about? So uh, usually um, China stuff, uh, particularly as it relates to um, African-Americans or sometimes Africans in China. Uh, but that kind of stuff, yeah. Sometimes basketball. I'm a big Bulls fan. Oh, I'm sorry about Derrick Rose. Yeah, we will come back next year. All right, well, best of best of luck to to that, um, Dr. Kalu. How do people find you? I am also on Twitter. I can be found at nkme kalu. I also blog at my blog. 
Again, can't remember the address, but you oh can my also God. find my blog, my, my blog post at Calorie and Rice. Calories and Rice. So, um, yes, I can be found in those places. <laughs> I'm gonna have to start adding your um, your blog account to the script, so we can we can pull it up ne- next time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, yeah. So I can be found on caloriesrice.blogspot.com, um, and. Uh, yeah, we're, we we add a bunch of China Africa stuff. We've been pulling up some of Dr. Kalu's stuff, and and hopefully we'll have more people guest posting. Uh, my Twitter handle is at um, Winslow underscore R, where I mostly tweet about China Africa news, China news, different parts about Africa, um, and and yeah. Oh, dang, I forgot. Um, uh, it's not a recommendation, but um, Leslie Ann Warner who's a, a buddy of mine, just did a, a good um, video on the PBS News Hour talking about South Sudan. So if you're interested about South Sudan stuff, you should get up on her. Dang, I should have put in the recommendation. Oh, well. Um, but yeah, that's, 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 sort, of, that's sort of it. Um, that's about it for today's episode. We would really like to thank Marquitas for joining us. This, it was morning, now it's afternoon. Um, and we're all in Eastern time, so that this, this is pretty easy to put together. Um, one thing I, I would like to point out is that actually, you know, we, we, we've said, you know, a lot of things about China and Chinese racism, but China has had some really wonderful people, um, that some really wonderful open-minded people, and, and we don't want to give the impression that, that uh, the Chinese are these sort of uh, a, a massive group of racist people who can never be changed, but, you know, just... Of course, um, of course. I, I, and I want to be very explicit saying that, because we are friends of China, all of us. Uh, Chinese government actually um, sent out uh, police to protect people, to protect Africans during the Nanjing anti-Africa, um, anti-African protests. So the, the Chinese government, in their way, stepped in and, and protected China, uh, African lives. So, you know, hat tip to them. So, you know, we're trying to, trying to keep everything fair and balanced. I know I should, probably shouldn't have used that term, but we'll see. Um, and, and, yeah, so... That, that's sort of it. We'd like to thank Marquitas. We'd like to thank African Development Jobs and the Africa Daily. This podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, iTunes, and, and probably over this break I'll, I'll try to put it on other um, media outlets. If you would like to give us a little Christmas present, you can go on all of those and like us and rate us. Um, and hopefully we'll have enough ratings to be actually found on iTunes. Right now there's only two ratings and one by myself, one by my wife. Um, and, and yeah, we'd also like to thank Mighty Mike of Pulse Recordings for composing the theme song. And thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care.